0: Hello there, and welcome to the Paradox Podcast. Today, we are starting a three-part series in the book of Titus, and we will be looking at the thesis statement of this epistle, and this episode is entitled, The Historical Trouble with Titus. The thesis statement for Titus is found in Titus's last chapter, chapter three, verses one and two. Before we read the thesis statement, though, I'd like to read from Titus chapter 1 and Titus chapter 2 to give some context to what the meaning of the thesis statement actually is. So with that in mind, let's begin in Titus chapter 1. We'll begin by reading verses 1 to 4. We read Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. For the sake of the faith of God's elect and the knowledge of the truth that is in accordance with godliness in the hope of eternal life that God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. In due time, he revealed his word through the proclamation with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior to Titus, my loyal child, in the faith we share grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. So in that long one-sentence introduction to the letter, The author identifies himself as Paul, writing to a man named Titus and writing with grace and peace. From there, we read verses 5 and 6 in chapter 1. Paul writes, I left you behind in Crete for this reason, that you should put in order what remained to be done, and you should appoint elders in every town as I directed you, someone who is blameless, married only once, whose children are believers, not accused of debauchery, and not rebellious. For a bishop as God's steward must be blameless. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or addicted to wine or violent or greedy for gain, but he must be hospitable, a lover of goodness, prudent, upright, devout, and self-controlled. So in chapter one, Paul talks to Titus about how he needs to establish leaders in the church. And these leaders in the church need to be good people who meet very specific qualifications. From there, then, in chapter two, Paul writes to Titus about the congregation and how the congregation should act and behave in response to their Christian faith. In chapter 2, verse 2, Paul writes to Titus, Tell the older men to be temperate, serious, prudent, and sound in faith, in love, and in endurance. Then Paul writes to Titus about how the women should behave, and he writes, Likewise, tell the older women to be reverent in behavior, not to be slanderers or slaves to drink. The women are to teach what is good so that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be self-controlled, chaste, good managers of the household, kind, being submissive to their husbands so that the word of God may not be discredited. Then in verse 9, Paul writes to Titus about how slaves should behave with their Christian faith. Paul writes, tell slaves to be submissive to their masters and to give satisfaction in every respect. They are not to answer back, not to pilfer, but to show complete and perfect fidelity, so that in everything they may be an ornament to the doctrine of God our Savior. He then wraps up with these instructions for the congregation with this paragraph. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all, training us to renounce impiety and worldly passions, and in the present age to live lives that are self-controlled, upright, and godly, while we wait for the blessed hope and the manifestation of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So just a quick recap here. Paul writes to Titus about how the religious leaders of the church should be holier than the rest of the congregation. On top of that, he then tells Titus that women should be obedient to their husbands and that slaves should just follow orders from their masters. This is the context for the thesis statement of Titus, chapter 3, verse 1 and 2. Paul writes, remind your congregation, Titus, to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show every courtesy to everyone. The thesis statement of Titus tells us That religious authority should be held to a high standard, and that the congregation's job is to obey the religious authorities. Now, when I read this thesis statement, I immediately think of three things. The first thing that I think about is the horrific evil that has occurred in the Catholic Church when it comes to sexual abuse. And as terrible as sexual abuse is, the fact that the church repeatedly chose to protect the church's reputation rather than stop pedophiles and protect the victims or the survivors of this sexual assault shows how corrupt and addicted we are to the ego, even within church leadership. The second thing I think of is, of course, women's ordination. Because when it comes to women's ordination, I have some personal experience with this, When I worked for a denomination who repeatedly told me that we should trust the authorities who were sure that God did not want us to ordain women. The main problem with this was when I look at the authorities who were praying to God, it was by far and away mostly men who came to this revelation. The third thing I think about is the queer community. Because I have seen over and over again in my lifetime, the church proclaim to the queer community that the church understands marriage better than anyone else. And therefore, because the church understands this one very narrow understanding of marriage, the queer community should not question their authority when it comes to what Christian marriage actually looks like. With those three stories in mind, I'd like for us to read the thesis statement of Titus again. Remind your congregation to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show every courtesy to everyone. So this whole premise that we are to accept religious authority and just obey makes me very uncomfortable And I'd like to ask you a question as you listen to this podcast. Are you also uncomfortable with the thesis of Titus? Because I am very uncomfortable with his idea that we should just always blindly follow religious authority because supposedly they're better than the rest of us. The thesis statement of Titus makes me uncomfortable And the thesis statement of Titus raises a very important question that I think everyone who considers themselves a student of the word should ask. What do we do when the Bible contains a book with a worrisome thesis? Do you double down and defend the words of scripture? Do you stand up and boldly say, I disagree with the Bible? What do you do? When you are reading a book of the Bible, and it contains a worrisome thesis. What I do is I consult the experts, and I do as much research as possible. And when I looked into research for Titus, I came across the work of a woman named Margaret M. Mitchell. Now, Margaret M. Mitchell is the dean of the School of Theology of the University of Chicago. In other words, she's a big deal. And she has a Ph.D. in New Testament Studies. So she has forgotten more about the New Testament than I have ever learned. Now, Dr. Mitchell wrote a commentary about the pastoral epistles, which are 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus. And in that commentary, she said, most scholars today regard 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus as pseudepigraphical. Yes, my brothers and sisters, pseudepigraphical. What a fantastic word. Of course, I had to look up what pseudepigraphical meant. And when you look it up in the dictionary, pseudepigraphical means the ascription of false names of authors to works. In other words, Dr. Mitchell is saying, Paul probably did not write Titus. Now, this is where we enter the world of biblical scholarship, and I appreciate you for journeying through this world with me. Because Paul supposedly wrote 13 letters that are in the Bible. Now, what you may not know is that there is a lot of debate raging within the biblical scholarly world about whether or not Paul wrote all 13 letters. In fact, you can find that most scholars agree, an overwhelming majority of scholars agree, that Paul most likely wrote seven of the 13 letters. Those seven that he most likely wrote are Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, Philippians, 1st Thessalonians, and Philemon. Now from there, there becomes more of a debate. And I have found that most scholars believe that Paul wrote Colossians and 2 Thessalonians, but it is a significantly smaller majority who thinks he wrote those two letters. From there, we move to the book of Ephesians, which is about a 50-50 split, as far as I can tell among biblical scholars who think Paul wrote Ephesians or did not. I'm personally in the camp that Paul wrote the majority of Ephesians even if it was a little different than the present form that we have today. From there, we go to the pastoral epistles, First and 2 Timothy and Titus. And I have read one scholar that I really respect, N.T. Wright, who believes that 2 Timothy was written by Paul. But I have not read any other scholar who I respect that thinks that Paul wrote 2 Timothy. From there, we go to 1 Timothy and Titus and I have not found one scholar who supports that Paul actually wrote either of those letters. I have read people who believe that Paul wrote 1 Timothy and Titus, but I have not read someone who believes those things that did not suffer from confirmation bias. So when we go back to Dr. Mitchell saying that most scholars today regard 1 Timothy and Titus as pseudepigraphical, she says that Paul probably didn't write Titus And I have found that most scholars agree with that statement. Now, that's a pretty big claim. And the reason that Dr. Mitchell says these things is threefold. She says there are historical problems with Titus, there are literary problems with Titus, and there are theological problems with Titus. All three of these things combined make the idea that Paul wrote this letter extremely problematic and very unlikely. So with that in mind, we're going to go over each of these problems over the next three weeks. So today we're going to tackle the historical problems with Paul writing Titus. And then next week we'll talk about the literary problems. And the week after that we'll talk about the theological problems. Looking at Titus this way will enable us to ask the question, what does this tell us about who God is and where God is leading us today? So with that in mind, let's turn to the historical problems and talk about why the history gets really funny when you look closely at the letter to Titus. Now, before we go any further, if you hear me say reasons why Paul probably didn't write this, you may say to yourself, well, this is a really weak problem or a weak argument against Pauline authorship. To which I would say, yes, you have to consider, though, all of the problems with this letter being attributed to Paul, uh, and they're not meant to be taken just isolated one by one. So the first historical problem pops up in Titus chapter 1, verse 5. The author writes, I left you behind in Crete for this reason. Now we have a biography of the life of Paul in the book of Acts, and then we have his personal letters. According to all of that combined literature, there is only one time that Paul is in Crete, and that is when he's on a prison boat on his way to Rome because he's been arrested by the Roman government. Now, here's the problem with this premise. According to Titus, Paul left Titus behind on Crete when he was there. Well, the only time that we know of that Paul visited Crete is when he's on a prison boat, which is hard to believe that he was allowed to bring visitors with him and make decisions about when they stay and when they go. (laughs) It doesn't really fit the whole under arrest premise, That the story in Acts follows. Not only that, but the historical validity of Titus gets even weaker in the very next verse. That you should put in order what remained to be done and should appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Someone who is blameless, married only once, whose children are believers, not accused of debauchery and not rebellious. In verse seven, he writes, for a bishop as God's steward must be blameless. He must not be arrogant or quick tempered or addicted to wine or violent or greedy for gain. So in other words, the author is writing to Titus and saying, hey, do you have some problems in your congregation? Well, make sure that your leadership is good. And there's this very top down kind of solution. New Testament scholar Dr. Bart Ehrman, who is a professor at University of North Carolina, picks up on this top-down nature and how out of character it is from Paul when compared with his other letters. Specifically, he looks at 1 Corinthians and how Paul solves problems there. Paul writes directly to the congregation and talks about what the congregation can do because they are talented people. Now, Dr. Ehrman says this is because Paul adamantly believed that Jesus was coming back in the very near future, within days or weeks or even months. So Paul writes to the congregation hoping that these matters can be solved quickly because Jesus is returning any moment now. So the solution is not top-down, but is very communally based. That urgency that Christ is coming back very soon is completely gone and absent from the writing to Titus. And the way that Dr. Ehrman sums this up can be found in his book Forged when he writes these words. There were no leaders of the church in Corinth. There were no bishops or deacons. There were no pastors. There was a group of individuals, each of whom had a gift of the Spirit in this brief time before Jesus Christ returned. In First and Second Timothy and Titus, you do not have individuals endowed by the Spirit working together to form the community. Here, you have the pastors, Timothy and Titus. You have the church leaders, bishops, and deacons. You have hierarchy, structure, organization. That is to say, you have a different historical situation than you had in the days of Paul. If you expect Jesus to come back soon, say sometime this month, there is no real need for a hierarchical system of organization and leadership. In other words, Dr. Ehrman says, if you thought that Jesus Christ was coming back in a month, would you really spend a lot of time setting up church structure? Uh, I don't think so. Compound that point with the fact that most scholars point out that bishops didn't show up until the 2nd century CE, 50 years after the death of the life of Paul, and you realize that the fact that Paul is writing about bishops becomes very historically problematic. So when you consider that Paul, or the author of Titus, is telling us that Titus was left behind in Crete even though Paul was a prisoner, and that Titus is expected to establish this church hierarchy that Paul never believed in, you can start to see how the book of Titus is riddled with historical trouble. This idea that Paul wrote Titus is very problematic. And if you're hearing this podcast and you're feeling a bit defensive about all of this, a question I would like to ask you is, Well, what happens if Paul didn't actually write Titus? What happens to this writing and the Bible as a whole and your understanding of the Bible if some other guy wrote the book of Titus? Well, I think there are two implications we need to consider about what happens if Paul didn't actually write Titus. The first one is this. Paul lived 2,000 years ago in the first century CE going around and traveling and spreading the good news of Jesus more than any other apostle. About 330 years after he died, there was a major church council that happened in Tunisia. This was the Council of Carthage and it took place in 397 CE. Now this council is very important because they acknowledge what books... Christians were using in the late 4th century to give authority to their spiritual lives. From there, the Council of Carthage voted on a list of 27 books that would eventually become the New Testament that we have today. Now if you look at the 27 books in our New Testament as verified by the Council of Carthage, you may ask yourself this question. Why? Why did the Council pick these books? And the answer is, all of these books were written by people who knew Jesus, with the exception of Luke, who knew Paul quite dearly. This is a big deal because this is what justifies these books being in the New Testament. Now, what's surprising about this is a few years ago, we studied the book of Hebrews. And I stood up on the stage of Paradox and on this podcast, and I said that we don't know who wrote Hebrews. And while scholarship today has revealed that it's very unlikely that Paul wrote the book of Hebrews, back 1600 years ago at the Council of Carthage, people really believed that Paul wrote Hebrews, and that's why it was included in the New Testament canon. This leads us to our first implication about what happens if Paul didn't write Titus. Because the only reason that Titus is in the Bible is because people believed it was written by Paul. And so when we ask what happens if Paul didn't write Titus, the implication is, well, then the authority of Titus is called into question. The only reason this council so long ago felt that Titus should have authority is because it was written by Paul. So when I come along and tell you that Paul didn't probably write Titus, you think to yourself, well, should this book have any authority at all then? Which brings us to the second implication And this one is something that Christians feel much stronger about. The second implication has to do with the book of Hebrews and the series that we did in Hebrews not too long ago. Because once again, I stood up and said, Hebrews probably wasn't written by Paul. Now to show you why people cared less about me saying that with Hebrews versus Titus, all we have to do is read the first verse in each book. Hebrews 1.1 reads, Long ago God spoke to our ancestors in many and various ways by the prophets, but in these last days he has spoken to us by a son. Titus 1.1, on the other hand, says, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. And then it goes on to tell us that Paul wrote this letter to Titus. In other words, people cared less about Hebrews because Hebrews does not claim to be written by Paul. So when we ask the question, well, what happens if Paul didn't actually write Titus? The second implication, which Christians care more about, is that the biblical text then tells us something that is untrue. Titus tells us it was written by Paul. And when a pastor comes along and says, eh, it's probably not true, you may be thinking to yourself, well, you're saying the Bible says something that's not true? To which I would respond, of course. There are several statements in the Bible that are not true. And at one point in my life, I believed that everything the Bible said was 100% true. And I found the only way to believe that wholeheartedly was to never read the Bible. Now, if you have this sense that if there is one inaccuracy or if there is one statement that the Bible says that is untrue, then the whole Bible then is a wash and we should just throw it out because we can't trust any part of it. I would tell you that is a false dichotomy given to you by the church. And the church really wants you to believe that everything in the Bible is true, even though there are statements in the Bible that are untrue. And one of the ways the church wields power is by telling you that everything in the Bible is true. If you are listening to this podcast and you are saying, come on, give me an example of a time the Bible says something that's not true, I will say to you, sure, I'll give you three. Let's begin with 2 Samuel chapter 24. Here, David, who many consider to be Israel's greatest king, is nearing the end of his life and his kingship. And in the waning years of his life, David is facing a terrible temptation to take a census of his people. This just goes to show that whenever a head of state wants to take a census of his or her people, it is always rooted in a sinful desire. So in 2 Samuel chapter 24, verse 1, we read about David taking this census. The words are, again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel and the Lord incited David against them, saying, go, count the people of Israel and Judah. So according to 2 Samuel, we read about how God is angry with Israel and so God tempts David to sin. Now, you don't have to be a biblical scholar to know that if you have an all-loving, all-powerful, all-good God tempting people to sin, It creates a lot of theological conundrums. A handful of centuries later the Jewish people are looking back at their history and they realize their theology does not match their historical experience. So what they do is they rewrite their history in two books called 1st and 2nd Chronicles and they tell the stories that are found in 1st and 2nd Samuel and 1st and 2nd Kings. So in 1st Chronicles they pick up on this conundrum of a good God tempting people to sin And they change their history to match their theology. In 1 Chronicles 21.1, we read about David taking a census, but it's a very different story. The words we read are this. Satan stood up against Israel, and Satan incited David to count the people of Israel. I don't know if you know this, but there is a really big difference between Satan and God. And here in 2 Samuel, the Bible tells us that God tempted David, but in 1 Chronicles, we hear about how Satan tempted David. Now, you may think that 2 Samuel is right, or you may think 1 Chronicles is right, or you may think they are both wrong. But what cannot happen is they cannot both be right. Either God or Satan tempted David to take this census, and one of these verses is simply not true. That brings us to a second example of when the Bible tells us something that is not true. Jesus Christ, who Christians profess to be the Son of God and knows all, is speaking about botany to people who are listening to him. These are his words in Matthew chapter 13. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed that someone took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all the seeds. There's just one problem. It's not the smallest of all the seeds. To give you an example, the seed of an orchid is smaller than the seed of mustard. So Jesus Christ says something that's not true. But he doesn't end there. Because Jesus then says, But when the mustard seed has grown, it is the greatest of shrubs and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches." there's a problem there as well. Because the mustard seed does not grow into a tree. The mustard seed grows into a shrubbery. And Jesus Christ, the Son of God, gets two botanical facts wrong. Now it's possible that you may say that Jesus Christ knew everything so the person who was writing it got the story wrong, to which I would say yes. But here we have an example of the biblical text telling us something that is not true. The third example I want to point to is in the book of Revelation. And let me tell you, Christians love the book of Revelation. (laughs) In chapter 7, we read the words of John, who is being shown a vision of reality. And this vision involves an angel lifting John up to the heavens so he can see all of the earth. Now, John writes about this in Revelation chapter 7, verse 1. After this, he said, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth. Now, I don't know if you know this, but the earth is round. And for some silly reason, people are starting to say the earth is flat again, which is completely untrue. So here in Revelation, John is telling us that he sees the world laid out not as a round disc, but as a flat square or rectangle. And there are four angels standing at the corners, and that simply isn't true. And it's here that you may be hearing these three different examples and saying to yourself, well, if the Bible's not true, then I can't trust any of it. Once again, that is the church pushing you into a corner because the church can hold power over you if you believe this. If this leaves your head spinning... And you're looking at the Bible saying, what do I do with the Bible then? I would tell you that you need to redefine what this book actually is. Now, I am not anti-Bible. I've dedicated my life to studying the Bible and to loving God. And I'd like to share with you my definition of the Bible. I've said this before on this podcast. But it's a definition that's really helped me through a lot of situations because I like words like 100% and accurate. And you may find this definition to be very helpful. You may find it not helpful at all. It's totally fine. But I want to tell you what I've found the Bible to be. The Bible is 100% accurate in the way a people group perceived God over multiple generations. Every corner of the Bible fits under this definition. And whether Paul wrote one part or Paul wrote another part is irrelevant compared to that ultimate testimony of people trying to understand and perceive who God is in their current context. So when we ask the question, what happens if Paul didn't actually write Titus? The authority of Titus is called into question, to which I would respond with just one word. Good. This is a worrisome thesis. The idea that we should just obey religious authority is problematic. So we should call the authority of Titus into question. The second implication, the biblical text tells us something that is untrue, is something that we all need to be aware of. Because even if you were to tell me I believe that Paul wrote Titus, I think the thing that we can all agree on is there are times that the biblical text tells us things that are simply untrue. Now between those two things, someone may hear this podcast and say, okay, Craig, so are you saying that we should take Titus out of the Bible? To which I would respond, no, don't do that. That's a terrible idea. Because when you consider what Titus says, this idea that we should blindly accept the authority of religious leaders, i got to tell you that I read that and I say, that doesn't sound like Paul. And it's in that moment that we have to remember that the inclusion of Titus in the Bible dares us to think critically about who Paul actually was. Now, I know a lot of Christians who can talk about Paul's conversion story on the road to Damascus, But very few Christians can talk about the work of Paul on his three groundbreaking, earth-shattering mission trips. And when you look at what happened to Paul when he was forced out of Jerusalem and no one wanted him, he went out to synagogues across the Western world and tried to preach the good news of Jesus. And the synagogues hated him for that. So after some time and getting beaten and chased out of towns, he said, enough with the religious people. I'm going to the pagans. And when he goes to the pagans, he doesn't go to them and say, hey, convert to my religion and you'll find God. Instead, he looks at people he does not know, whose customs he does not understand, the way they've worshipped before, and he says these words to them, God is here among you. You have experienced God in the food you eat, in the sunshine on your face, in the water that you swim in. Not only that, but God has always been with you, and God will be with you forever. Now, the religious institution heard that Paul was doing this and telling people that they were experiencing God, and they freaked out. Back at the mothership in Jerusalem, there was this sense that people came to that Paul is wrong, these pagans have to convert to our religion to experience the presence of God. And so, when the church was in crisis, they do what the church always does in crisis. They formed a committee and called everyone to come back to Jerusalem so they could get on the same page theologically. Paul goes back to Jerusalem with his travel companion Barnabas, as well as a pagan named Titus. And he arrives in Jerusalem. And talks about how God is already present among the Gentiles. We don't bring God to the Gentiles. There was a long debate back and forth. James, the brother of Jesus, presided over the Jerusalem council. And after a long debate, the committee decided that we should not make it difficult for people who want to follow Christ. At that point, there was great rejoicing among the progressive faction of the religion. And there was this idea that there should be some rules. So the Jerusalem Council said, we're going to come up with three rules. We had 600 rules before for our religion. We're going to bring it down to three. The three rules are this. Abstain from food offered to idols. Two, abstain from fornication. Three, abstain from food that has been strangled in blood. Now, if you're like me, you hear 600 rules going down to three, and you think, wow, that's an incredible moment, but not Paul. Paul heard these rules, these three rules, and he thought, stupid rules. Like if we follow these three rules, then all of a sudden God shows up. And we see how much Paul hated these rules in his letter to the Corinthians when after this decision from the Jerusalem Council came through and there was this big division in the Corinthian church because there were people who refused to eat with other people who were eating food sacrificed to idols, which, reminder, was the first rule of the Jerusalem Council. In that letter, Paul writes that we all know that what you eat does not affect your relationship with God. In 1 Corinthians 8.8, Paul writes, We are no worse off if we do not eat, and no better off if we do. This is who Paul was. And when I read the thesis statement of Titus, remind your congregation to be subject to rulers and authorities. I think to myself, Paul hated being subject to the authorities in Jerusalem. (laughs) To be obedient. Paul was not obedient. (laughs) To be gentle. Gentle and Paul do not go together. To avoid quarreling. Paul quarreled with people on behalf of those who were oppressed or looked down upon by religion. And when we read that thesis statement, if you have a picture of who Paul is in your mind, you know that thesis statement does not fit with that picture. And so the question you have to ask is, who was Paul? And if I could narrow the life story of Paul down to one sentence, the best I can come up with is this. Paul was a rebellious humanitarian who gave his lifeblood for the inclusion of those his religion deemed as unlovable by God and the entire letter to Titus is the exact opposite of that. Titus is about establishing authority and talking about how your religion and your position in that religion makes you better than everyone else the letter to Titus is very interested in maintaining the status quo The letter to Titus tells people who are underneath or overrun by the system to stay down because that's the way God wants things. And I think what the letter to Titus picks up on is one of the greatest temptations that every religious person faces. Whenever we practice religion, we are tempted to believe that our religion makes us better than everyone else. And when you compare and contrast that with the life of Paul, you realize that Paul had very little interest in being better than others. Paul, on the other hand, wanted to include those that his religion told him he was better than. (laughs) So the question that Titus asks us is twofold, and this is the most practical application we can take from the thesis statement of Titus. Does my religion inspire me to believe that I am better than others? Or does my religion inspire me to see the presence of God among others? Because if we believe in the same way that Paul believed, that God is already present among others, then every person, no matter how different they are from us, can ultimately teach us something about God and can be viewed with love rather than suspicion. My brothers and sisters... May we see and embrace Jesus Christ in all.